So greetings. If any of you are joining us online or just got here, I'm Joel, pleased to bring you the gospel. Welcome to Heart City Church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in your devices to Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. It's also furnished in your bulletin on page 5. We find here in these verses some teachings of Jesus that on the surface look very unconnected, but there is a thread that runs through them all. What's that thread, Joel? Humility. Humility. St. Augustine was once asked, so what are the ways of God? And he said, in the first place, humility. In the second place, humility. And in the third place, can you guess it? Humility. Humility, it's so hard to grab though, isn't it? It's easy to go sideways when you try to be humble. Speaking of humility, there's a story of a rabbi in a synagogue and who in a moment of elation, he suddenly fell to his knees and proclaimed, Lord God, I am nothing. Now the cantor who was over there saw this display and immediately he did the same, fell down, Lord God, I am nothing. Now there happened to be a janitor who was in the back and he saw this display and his knees began to buckle and finally he fell down too to his knees and said, Lord God, I am nothing. At which point the rabbi nudged the cantor and said, look who thinks he's nothing like us. You're going to laugh at that later. That's funny. Because isn't that how humility is? It's like water in your hand and once you think you got a hold of it, it slips right out. This actually captures what we've been looking at in the last few chapters. Jesus has been exposing this about the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees rightly had a big vision of who God was. They got God's greatness. So much so that they dedicated their lives to the practice of humility. Talk about praying long times in front of people. They tithed regularly. They fasted twice a week. Any of you fasted twice this week? <laughs> They became known for their outward displays of humility. They got so good at it, in fact, they couldn't help but notice how all their neighbors were really lacking humility. So they decided to provide a guide to help poor sinners. They called it the Mishnah, a set of rules. It was a guidebook to help you so that you could attain to humility. Actually, Mishnah, I think in English, translates to humility and how we achieved it. All right, nobody's really laughing this morning. You're all laughing inside, I know it. Do we see the problem here? Jesus was revealing with these Pharisees how their pride was actually leading them to actually treat their fellow men with contempt. So the question is, where did they go wrong? They started out well with a big vision of who God was. But then they paired that vision of God's greatness with a vision of their own goodness, of their own goodness. My friends... That will never produce humility. And Jesus actually warned us, as we saw last week, that that will take you to hell. Today, Jesus is going to address his disciples with the proper vision his church, his disciples, must have. Humility comes when you pair the vision of God's bigness with a vision of man's badness. God's bigness and man's badness is the path to humility. And humility then will teach you that at best, all you've ever done as a faithful servant is your duty. 
Now let's hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 17. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on Thursday I had my annual physical and my doctor told me something new. My doctor looked me square in the eyes and he said, Joel, you've transitioned, you've passed the age of 45, and being that your family has a history of cancer, you need to pay attention to yourself. I must be on the lookout going forward. It's a matter of life and death. This almost captures Jesus' seriousness when he says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. What's Jesus' concern? That his disciples will not take serious the disease of sin. Did you see it in the surrounding verses? Verses 1, 2, pay attention to yourself, verse 4, 5. Now the Greek for pay attention here is found like four times in Luke, and it always comes as a warning to not be like the Pharisees because the Pharisees thought too much of their own goodness. In the last two chapters, Jesus showed us that they were singing that Willie Nelson number you probably have heard. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Now we laughed a little more at that because that tells the truth on all of us, doesn't it? We're all prone to think like that. J.C. Rao writes, We're all naturally proud and self-righteous. We think far more highly of ourselves than we have any right to do. Most people can see it in other people, but are blind to its presence in themselves. Seldom will a saint be found who is not sometimes tempted to be pleased with himself. There is such a thing as pride which wears the cloak of humility. There is not on heart on earth which does not contain a peace of the Pharisees' character. Friends, we all need to hear Jesus, Dr. Jesus, saying to us this morning, pay attention. Pride can lead us to the fact that sin is a real danger for each and every one of us here, and it can have eternal consequences as we saw last week. 
This is while Jesus now turns from the Pharisees to his disciples in chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were tied around his, hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Now the Greek word here for temptation actually means stumbling block. Stumbling block is naturally anything in front of you that would cause you to stumble. And Jesus is saying that stumbling is inevitable for every one of us. As James said, we all stumble in many ways. Jesus is holding up your badness right in front of you and saying you're all prone to sin in certain ways. Every one of us here. Some of you kids are really competitive. You'll do anything you can to win, and you don't really care how. Some of you stumble into lying because you want what you want. Stumbling doesn't go away, by the way, when you grow up. <laughs> A couple of adult members here actually told me they had incidences of road rage this week. Some of us are prone to look at what we shouldn't by clicking a button. My father had a grambling problem his whole life. Maybe you have family members who are prone to alcoholism, overeating, greed. We all have particular temptations that we face. Now, Jesus is addressing his disciples here, the church family that he has brought together. It's really surprising here that he drops his first woe on them. He's reserved this specifically for Pharisees, and now he drops a woe on them, a warning woe. He's warning us that we can be stumbling blocks for others, and the results can be costly. Now, I have in my mind a painful experience of a buddy who became a literal stumbling block. I think I was like 12 or 13. I was at Lifeline Camp down in southern Indiana, and one of my buddies walked up, came up and started to distract me. I didn't know they'd hatched a plan. And while he was distracting me, talking to me, the other buddy came up right behind me and got on all fours. And as soon as he was in place, the other buddy pushed me over, became a little stumbling block for me. You know, this is typical boy roughhousing, right? But they didn't expect that I was going to bust my wrist. Ended up in a Kentucky hospital with my arms swelled up like a watermelon. And it ruined the trip for everybody, and I wore a cast all that summer long. Friends, we must pay attention to ourselves and what we can do to others. We cannot become stumbling blocks for each other here at Heart City Church because our sinning can cause far worse pain and far more destruction than a busted wrist. That is why Jesus is very serious here about not causing his little ones to stumble. He actually says it would be better for you to experience a mafia-style death than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. He says, consider a millstone. This is one of these gigantic rocks, stones. It's round. It has a donut hole center. would weigh maybe 1,000 pounds. Take takes several men to move it. He says, imagine that with a rope tied around it and then the other end tied around your neck and guys putting you on a boat, going way out to sea, and then they push the stone over and you're watching the rope going to happen to you. Huh? One last breath and then you're taken to the bottom of the sea. Jesus says that would be a far better fate than what would happen to you, will happen to you if you cause one of his little ones to sin. Think Jesus sounds serious about sin here? By the way, he's on his way to Calvary's cross as he's saying this. 
He's going to pay for sin. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. So little ones, who are they? Commentators debate this. Does this mean actual children? Does it mean vulnerable saints? Does it mean people who are just generally weak? The answer is yes. Yes. Yes to all. We must be vigilant not to be stumbling blocks to anyone. Woe to us if we are. Jesus says in the strongest way possible, we have to keep a close watch on our lives so that we're not living in such a way that will lead others into sin. Parents, the choices you make in front of your children, the attitudes you have towards others, your children are watching you. And if they stumble, that's on you too. If you're doing what you shouldn't, don't think that will not impact them. Jesus says you're culpable. You need to repent. There may be rights that you have to give up for the sake of others. This is a call to humility, do you see? You may not have a problem with alcohol. You enjoy a glass of beer or a glass of wine. But if you have a sister or a brother who does have this problem, then you should give up your right, forsake your right, so you don't cause them to stumble. You said it would be better for you to just go down and anger a local gang so they put out a hit on you than to cause this person to stumble. Do you get the seriousness of this? Friends, until we're glorified with Jesus, we are in a nonstop battle with sin and its consequences, which is why Jesus now says, ah, but here's how you can deal with it. There is an answer to this. Verse 3, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I want to give an aside here because the last few weeks have been really something, haven't they, in our nation. I limit my news take, not because I don't care, but I simply cannot bear the weight of all the nation's evils on my shoulder. I'm finite. I believe it's my duty actually to focus on those that God has set right in front of me, where I can actually have some measure of impact. That's actually what Jesus is instructing here. This is message for his church, to focus on one another. But at the same time, I haven't turned a blind eye to the national events of recent weeks. My heart hurts over the racial killing that happened in Buffalo, the murder of innocent little ones in Texas. I'm certain you feel the same rage, the same sorrow. Let that hurt. Let that rage help you understand Jesus' point here. Jesus has just told us he cares very much for little ones. And Jesus is now telling us here how to protect them. How is that, Joel? One word. Discipline. Discipline. If you found yourself wondering about the total chaos that we see in our nation right now, it directly correlates to the absence of discipline in this culture. You see it in the store with the little children in the supermarket. You see it on the streets. I sit in my corner office and I watch the road rage go right by my window. Now, I'm not remotely interested in addressing the lack of discipline in our culture today. As I said, that's far too big for me and not our point this morning. But I do want us to see what, what will become if we don't take church discipline seriously. 
sin will spread like cancer and it will wreak destruction if we don't have members watching paying attention to ourselves and going up and saying sister that isn't what Jesus wants you to do if we don't have leaders saying brother you need to repent of that that's not right let's be honest we don't like to put ourselves out like that do we we don't like to confront somebody else in their sin you know why what are two of the hardest things for people to say? Number one, I was wrong. Number two, I forgive you. Why are those two things so hard to say? They require humility. They require serious humility. But Jesus has just pointed out our proclivity to badness. So let's accept that here at Heart City Church, us as members, we're going to do bad things. We all have blind spots. We're all sinners here. That's why we confess our sins every week. Isn't that wonderful? We all watch each other confess that we're all sinners together. So when we see someone in sin, oh, well, of course. And in fact, there's restoration that happened because we have the gospel. I got rebuked last week. I'm glad it could happen because I could say I was wrong and I can now ask for forgiveness. I'm glad that a fellow believer came up to me and was so bold as to say, you screwed up, Joel. I'll admit, I didn't like hearing it. And for like a millisecond, I thought in my mind, I'm Pastor Joel. Oh, and then I popped that balloon <laughs> and came back to reality. And I thank Jesus for sending a messenger to help me to see where I had stumbled, where it actually caused someone else to stumble. I think this is the gospel we may need to tattoo on the back of each eyelid. The gospel is not, I'm right. The gospel is, I'm greatly loved even when I'm not. And God has put us in a community where, praise God, we can be disciplined for our good. Rebuke. It's the very first step of discipline. And this is a one-on-one -on -one thing. Jesus says this is actually the way we can create a safe space here in an undisciplined world. We cannot do like the world where Bob sins against Carol. So Carol then goes to Tom and Bob goes to Jim and then it goes everywhere and soon everyone's raging, right? How can repentance possibly take place when all the information's out there and actually everyone's misinformed about what really happened? Thank God Jesus has given us a better way than what we see out in our world today. We recognize our badness. So when someone comes up and rebukes you, we say, thank you for rebuking me. Thank you for loving me, even if you're only 1% wrong. We see the awfulness of our sin. Not just how it affects us, but how it impacts others. And we don't want them to suffer. So we repent. We say, I was wrong. And we ask, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? At which point now the ball's in the other court. If you're the one sinned against and the other person repents, Jesus says you must forgive. And there's a repeat of this. You must forgive again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And some of you are thinking, oh, I'm so glad Jesus put the limit at seven because so-and-so is well past number eight by now. Uh, I see Olivia shaking her head, right? No, my friend. <laughs> Jesus is saying we must keep forgiving so long as they keep repenting. And that requires humility. Why is it so hard to forgive? 
Yeah. Why are we? Why is it so hard to forgive? I think Willie, Willie Nelson actually, he's got a lot of answers. I'm sorry, I'm Willie Nelson kicked this week. He wrote that song, Forgiving You Is Easy, But Forgetting Seems to Take the Longest Time. Friends, we are not God. God can take our sins, as we saw in Micah 7, and he can throw them in the deepest part of the sea. Praise God that every sin you confess this morning, God has completely forgotten. They're not there in his mind at all not easy so easy for us is it the reality is some of us have been deeply hurt by others and there are wounds that never fully heal in this life it's impossible to forget them oftentimes we can and we should pray that we forget these sins ask God to help us with that but Jesus only commands us to forgive he doesn't command us to forget is what actually helped Corey Ten Boom. I know I've used this illustration before. She's that Dutch woman who went sent to Ravensbrück, the Nazi concentration camp, during World War II after her family was caught harboring Jews. Ravensbrück, it was awful. They conducted scientific experiments on people. Thousands suffered, died excruciating deaths. At least 50,000 women died there. The population of Elkhart. We don't actually know because the Nazis didn't keep records. And Corey's dear sister Betsy died there, horribly, slowly, of malnutrition. Amazingly, after the war, Corey came and brought the gospel of forgiveness. She went to Germany to share the news with these people who had committed such horrible sins. There's a scene where she talks about she went to Munich, and she told this audience that God could forgive all their sins. She proclaimed that God put a sign out there in the middle of the ocean where he dumped their sins, and it says, no fishing allowed. And not one person responded. The audience just stared back blankly at her. They're beginning to walk out. And suddenly she sees someone who has responded walking up to her. And she recognized his face as a flashback came to her mind. A scene where dresses were laid on the floor and her Sister Betsy had to be was paraded naked in front of these prison guards, and here was walking up one of the cruelest of them. And suddenly she's standing face to face with this Nazi guard who extends his hand and he says, Do you know, you know what he said? He said, Fine message, Fraulein. Good to hear that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. I was once a guard at Ravensbrook, but now I am a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips. Will you forgive me? This devout believer found her hand buried in her pocketbook and she couldn't pull it out. She said this was the most difficult challenge that she ever faced in her life, and the thought of even touching him made her heart turn cold. I think that's what the apostles are thinking right now in verse 5 when they say to the Lord, increase our faith. Remember, the apostles are living under enemy occupation from Rome. They did horrible things to the Jews. And Jesus had already called them to love their enemies back in chapter 6. Now Jesus is calling them to forgive when they cannot forget the atrocities committed by the Romans. 
You see what's happening? They're crying out because they lack the resources for Jesus' kingdom of God program. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I know people have taken this saying and twisted it so it means what it does not mean. But Luke actually gives us a really helpful clue here. So we will keep in sight the important thing. He refers to Jesus as Lord two times. Did you see that? Verses 5 and 6. Joel, why is it so significant that Luke has referred to Jesus as Lord? Do you know that Luke hasn't referred to Jesus as Lord since like four chapters ago? Chapter 13. But now, as the disciples are seeing their lack of faith to forgive, Luke highlights who it is that they're asking. Jesus is the Lord. Luke is blowing up Jesus in front of them. Luke is highlighting Jesus' bigness as they fixate on the littleness of their faith. We can fixate on faith, you know. I've heard folks say to me, Oh, I wish I had your faith, Joel. And I want to say, You don't need my faith. You need my Lord. You need my Savior. If it's the size of faith that matters in a church, and I've been in churches like this, oh, you just don't have enough faith. What happens? Well, you have different classes of Christians. You have big-sized faith Christians, and you have little faith Christians. And pride slips in. Jesus' point here is it's not about the size or the quantity of our faith. It is about his power to help us especially to forgive, the power of our Lord. Faith to forgive in a world where terrible evils happen. And Jesus is not telling us to do, we can do tree removal with our faith, like Yoda-like powers. I wish he did. I would have saved time last week and energy when Jesus, Jamie had me uh, removing some plants and transplanting them in our backyard. I would have loved it. No. Jesus himself never moved trees or mountains. He walked over and around them. This is hyperbole. And the tree referred to here, the mulberry, is unique. The rabbis wrote that it had a root system so extensive that it had a 600-year lifespan. You couldn't pull it out. Jesus is saying that there are some things that are rooted so deeply in us that only faith in Jesus' lordship can pull it out. I think Corey Ten Boom got this as she faced her former enemy asking for forgiveness. There he was, a sinner in need of grace. His hand extended out to her. And Corey says, my hand was stuck in my pocketbook like the roots of a mulberry tree. But she remembered her Lord's call to forgive and she prayed. She said, Jesus, help me. She asked for faith and she pulled out her hand to take his. And as former prison guard and former prisoner exchanged this handshake, healing warmth flooded Corey. She says she experienced the most intense love she ever had in her entire life. And she knew it was not her love because she didn't have that power in and of herself. She was tapping into the love and forgiveness found at the cross of Calvary. And we place ourselves in position to experience the love of God. When we as forgiven sinners look to the grace of the cross where you were purchased by God from your sin to live as your Lord's servant. And that, I believe, is a connection to this final parable that Jesus says, Will any of you 
one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me oh, and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant for what he did because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus tells a story of a servant who's been out plowing or shepherding, and he comes home after a long day, and does the master say, oh, poor servant, you look tired. Why don't you put your feet up, and I'll fix you dinner. <laughs> no. master says, Hey, I'm glad you're back now. It's time to make my dinner, but not in your condition. You're a mess. Go get cleaned up and then get in the kitchen. I'm hungry. Oh, and don't expect any thanks from me either. Jesus is making a point to help us remain humble. You see, when we have been beginning to make progress in our lives in terms of dealing with sin and forgiving those who have hurt us, when our faith begins to become evident before a watching world, we can begin to look at the uprooted mulberry trees in our lives and we start to say, hmm, not bad, Joel. Look at the landscaping. Look at what you've done with your life. Don't we do that? What if you walked up to me after the service and this wouldn't happen? You said, Joel, that was the greatest sermon ever. And I said to you, well, thank you very much. Of course, I thought so myself. I probably wouldn't see you again, would I? As we look at the accomplishments that we make through faith in our Lord Jesus, we are prone to begin to set our eyes on them. We're prone to begin to rest in them and forget the grace of God that made it possible. And as we rest in them and not in our Lord, we begin to exalt our own goodness, just like those Pharisees. And we begin to think that we're due a reward from God, just like we saw in that parable in chapter 16. Jesus is saying we must always realize we are not our own, but we have been purchased at a great cost, the blood that washed us of all of our sins. And that, my friend, makes us servants. And as servants, we can never make God our debtors. As those saved out of a world doomed for destruction by Jesus, we love him for all he's done for us. He is our everything, and we want to serve him all our days. So at the end of our lives, if we actually did do all that we were commanded, we would still say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Of course, that's not the end of the story. We know that. The end of the story is God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. And then we're awarded a crown of life. What do you think your response will be to God's well done and the reward he gives you, the award? Will you say, yes, God, I really knocked it out of the park there. <laughs> Didn't I? No. Not a chance. If you have taken in your badness and the greatness of your God and his grace for you, on that day, you will know that even the well done you get is all of God's grace. So I think about duty and humble service. And tomorrow's Memorial Day, we can't help but think of the soldiers. They seem to get that. I don't think we know much duty 
apart from maybe looking at these guys in our culture. I've been amazed by soldiers, especially those who've won the Medal of Honor. How do they get to that point? They have disciplined themselves their whole lives, or at least while they're in the, in the service and in service of our country. You ever see those awards where the president puts it around their neck? What do they always say? I only was doing my duty. Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for Bravery in the Battle of Kamdesh. It's like the only time since Vietnam two guys actually won the award the same for the same battle. Ty Carter was stationed in Camp Keating in Afghanistan in 2009. They nicknamed this camp Camp Custer because it was predicted that everybody in it would die. You know why? It was in a valley surrounded by mountains on all four sides, which meant the enemy had the high ground. It was a death trap. They call it the fishbowl. And the enemy constantly took sniper shots day after day after day. And on October 3rd, 400 Taliban soldiers attacked the camp. And the soldiers were pinned down. Ty Carter had never even killed a man. But he chose at that moment to throw himself out into the battle. And for hours, you know what he did? He ran back and forth to all the pinned down soldiers carrying ammunition again and again and again. He was bringing information, pointing out the blind spots that they didn't know about, and even carried the wounded to safety. His efforts resulted in that camp being defended. The men were saved. And after the battle, you know what they did? They're like, oh, this, isn't a, this is a bad idea, and they blew up the whole camp. <laughs> That's where we are, my friends. We're in a battle against sin, and there are sniper attacks coming at each and every one of us. We're in a death trap, and this place cannot last. And the call is for us to throw ourselves out there and helping each other in our battle against sin all around that's seeking to destroy us. We need to be pointing out to each other our blind spots and providing fresh measures of grace through rebuke and forgiveness to all of us who are under attack. That's it. That's it. As disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are called to throw ourselves unreservedly out there into the battle for one another. Are you a disciple? Perhaps you're thinking, Joel, (laughs) I don't think I could make that work, get out on the battlefield and do all that. Here's the thing. It's not our duty to try to make it work, to try to be successful. It's our duty to simply come to our Lord Jesus Christ to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust that he will make it work. And then humbly walk with him after you come to him. And then you truly can abandon all in service on your way to a better country whose founder and builder is God. So let's make humility, make humility our way as we leave here today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this? That you would call us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray, Lord, that as we hear these teachings of Jesus, that we will take up a humble posture as we leave this place. We pray, Father, that you will help us to pay attention to ourselves in our battle against sin. We pray that we might also be on the lookout for one another, be willing to say hard things, knowing that, in fact, our Lord Jesus promises us blessing when we do. 
and blessings for others as well. May we have hearts able to receive this, and may we continue to press on, looking forward to that wonderful day when we will be able to stand before you, having only done our duty, and receive that well done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.